Hey, OnScript listeners. Before we get started today, I wanted to put out a request. At OnScript, we're looking for help with a project that we have coming up. We're looking for someone who can volunteer some time to help us with editing and sourcing royalty and copyright-free music into podcasts. So if you or someone you know has skills in that area and would love to volunteer some time with us, we'd be really appreciative. That's for editing music into podcasts and sourcing that for us. Uh, if you could email at me at onscriptpodcast at gmail.com, onscriptpodcast at gmail.com, we'd be really appreciative. Thanks so much. Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash onscript. Welcome OnScript listeners. I'm Drew Johnson. Uh, don't worry, we haven't killed Matt Lynch or taken him hostage anywhere. Uh, he's just in the middle of a transatlantic move from England to Canada. And so uh, I am recording the opening here. Uh, I am one of the hosts along with Matt Lynch and uh, Matt Bates, I think, is another one, and Aaron Heim and Amy Brown-Hughes, and then there's Chris Tilling who hides away in England and pops his head out every once in a while to join us. Um, today's episode is a little different. We've done some of these in the past. Uh, it's it's going to be interactive where uh, Aaron Heim is reading a paper she wrote on um, the Me Too movement and sexual trauma. Uh, and a constructive reading of 1 Corinthians 15. It's a fantastic paper. It's a two-parter. So she'll be reading the first half, and then her and I stop every once in a while while she's reading. And we basically have a little discussion about what she's talking about. There will be a discussion of a sensitive nature, but there won't be anything graphic in this episode. Uh, But you do need to be aware that uh, we are going to be talking very directly about sexual abuse and trauma, including our own stories. Uh, we want to thank, of course, Ed Hatke, who edits all of these, uh, who is our basically our senior audio engineer, and of course, Re- Rebecca Terhune, who does all of our promotion and makes sure people hear about OnScript. You, of course, can help people to hear about OnScript, become part of the OnScript army by going to your local favorite vendor of podcast and rating us and making sure, rating us very highly, of course, and making sure people find out about us. So on behalf of Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Amy Brown-Hughes, and that guy Chris Tilling, who I'm told still exists, um, welcome to OnScript. Welcome to OnScript. I'm here today with my co-host, Aaron Heim. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Drew. And uh, we're going to be talking together about a a pretty difficult subject, and that is sexual violence in Scripture and sexual violence uh, today. And uh, Erin's going to be reading uh, a paper that she gave uh, a few months ago, and we're going to be just stopping and discussing this paper at points, but I want to get us into the conversation by reading uh, just a paragraph from Corey Tenboom's The Hiding Place, and this is when she's at Ravensbrook uh, at the concentration camp, and her and her sister are being stripped naked and paraded in front of the Nazi prison guards. And this is a reflection that she had. She says, But it was one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering naked in the corridor, that yet another page of the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on a cross. I had not known where I had not thought that the paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at the least a scrap of cloth. But this I suddenly knew 
was the respect and the reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned towards Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blade stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. I think that's a great insight as we were talking, uh, as I was talking with Aaron about this uh, paper, about what happened on the cross and how we should think about it and, and the experiences that people bring to what happened on the cross. And so uh, I'm going to turn it over to Aaron, who is going to be reading sections of her paper again, and then I'll be joining in for discussion at, at points. And I think it's worth mentioning at the outset that both Aaron and I have suffered from uh, sexual violence, molestation, uh, what you want to call it, in our lives. And so this is uh, especially appropriate for us to be thinking about this. But um, we know that many of you who listen to this uh, have suffered the same, and you certainly know people, you're related to people uh, who have suffered the same. And so we think this is an important topic uh, worth covering. So uh, without any more of my blethering on about it. Uh, Aaron, I'll let you take it from here. Thanks, Drew. Uh, as Drew said, we're breaking from our usual format, and we're actually going to do this in a two-part series so that I'll, we'll read the whole paper over two episodes and discuss it. Uh, and the paper that I'm going to read is a paper that is called Resurrection and the Hashtag MeToo Movement, a constructive reading of the crucified, resurrected body in 1 Corinthians 15. I first gave a version of this paper in a biblical studies seminar at the University of Edinburgh in the fall of 2019, and then I gave a shortened version of this paper uh, in the biblical theology session of the Institute for Biblical Research annual meeting in uh, the fall of 2019 also. Um, and the response at both of those uh, venues was overwhelming, um, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, and I think it was overwhelmingly positive because people within the academic community uh, have experienced sexual violence and, uh, and, and we've been affected by it and it affects how we read scripture and it affects how we live in Christian communities. So um, this, this paper is my attempt to, uh, to give voice to those experiences. Uh, and I think that's really important. But this paper that I'm about to read is not the, the sort of paper that we usually hear on OnScript. It's not the sort of paper that we usually hear in academic biblical studies at all. For one, it's too personal. Uh, I'm breaking with the academic tendency toward the rational and objective that still permeates much of biblical studies. And um, I'm daring to offer up some of my own narrative here. Secondly, for someone who usually trades in biblical studies, this paper's too theological, which is something we've talked about a lot on OnScript. Um, but it's too theological in the sense that I've written unapologetically, but I hope also self-reflectively as a person of faith. And in this paper, I'm going to speak unreservedly about the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. I'm not going to bracket out my Christian identity uh, and put it to one side so as to appear to be a serious scholar of the Bible, because this paper is largely an autoethnographic engagement with the text. My faith commitments, like my personal narrative, are going to be interwoven throughout. Moreover, although my reading of Resurrection is an idiosyncratic example of theological interpretation, 
The approach of this paper also falls within the broad movement of theological interpretation of scripture that's been emerging during the past several years. Um, it's theological interpretation insofar as I'm intentionally reading from a particular theological point of view, and I'm intentionally reading within, and I hope for, a particular faith community. So listener, if these starting places are troublesome for you in some way, I hope you can still engage with what follows our, the paper and the conversation between Drew and me uh, by finding some points of agreement and finding points, points where you can enter into that conversation. The constructive reading I'll offer in this paper presupposes the particular theological framework of American evangelical Protestantism, which is my own Christian tradition, and a particular reading community. Christian Me Too survivors. In the paper, I'm going to most often refer to Christian survivors of sexual violence, because my hope is that this reading appeals to a broadly Christian perspective rather than to a narrowly evangelical one. I hasten to add that I am by no means implying that the reading I offer here does not also have implications for other interpretive communities, whether these be different religious traditions or indeed of no religious affiliation. Rather, I'm just emphasizing from the outset that my concern here is to read constructively, both within an interpretive community of Christian Me Too survivors, and specifically for that interpretive community. I also recognize that not everyone listening would be able um, or be willing to grant that Christian Me Too survivors constitutes an interpretive community. At least not um, at least it's certainly not the interpretive community that practitioners of theological interpretation of scripture typically have in mind when they speak of the need to read scripture within the context of an ecclesial community. But I submit that this community of survivors, which has been drawn together by hashtags and horrific experiences, and which is increasingly visible and vocal within our churches, and indeed in academic theology and religion, should inform theological readings of the resurrection, and should also be comforted by, rather than traumatized by, theological readings of the resurrection. In 2006, Tarana Burke started a nonprofit called Just Be Inc. Her aim was to provide resources for victims of sexual assault and abuse, resources that had been unavailable to her as a survivor of the ongoing sexual abuse she endured as an adolescent. Even before the advent of mass social media campaigns, Burke began using the phrase Me Too, to raise awareness regarding the sexual harassment, abuse, and assault women had experienced. In 2017, actress Alyssa Milano tweeted, if all the women who had been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Following Milano's tweet, the hashtag Me Too took Twitter by storm, receiving 55,000 responses in the first 24 hours. Women from every age, race, class, and creed began to freely share their experiences of being sexually abused, assaulted, harassed, often in excruciating and heartbreaking detail via various social media platforms. Hashtag MeToo continued to gain momentum. And during the first year alone, the hashtag MeToo appeared in nearly 14 million public tweets. This hashtag which was followed closely by hashtag church to and hashtag silence is not spiritual, which gave voice to experience of abuse that occurred within the church, forced wider society to reckon with an uncomfortable truth that was hiding in plain sight. 
millions of women have been have had heinous sins committed against their bodies. This is an uncomfortable truth that most women know all too well and in all likelihood have experienced to some degree or another. For those with ears to hear and eyes to see, the hashtag MeToo movement confronts us with the violated bodies of women. It names the everyday vulnerability that comes with the territory of being female. And it sets our gaze firmly on the embodied experience of half the world's population. At very least, hashtag MeToo is a movement that is aware of the difference embodiment makes. And it dares us, it begs us, not to look away. Like so many women, I also can say me too. As a young girl, age 12, I was sexually abused by my uncle. And I won't recount the details here, but I have lived with myriad manifestations of that trauma for decades now. So the reading of 1 Corinthians 15 that I'm going to offer is at least in part a reading that I myself need for my own healing. And as such, I will necessarily speak of we and our and me and my rather than they and them, because I cannot pretend that this reading comes from a place of dispassionate analysis. Furthermore, experience tells me that I'm not alone, that there are almost assuredly more Me Too survivors who are listening. Yet let me be clear, this reading is not a reading that presumes to speak for all Me Too survivors. Such a stance may only further silence the voices of Me Too survivors who must speak alternative readings. Indeed, I acknowledge that some survivors might even find my reading harmful or offensive because their own experiences with sexual violence, either within the church or in tandem with Paul's text, differ profoundly from the circumstances which have given rise to my own reading. Nevertheless, my reading is a reading to the community of Me Too survivors, which I hope will acknowledge the pain and injustice of sexual and gender-based violence and might provide some measure of hope and healing. Most of all, I hope that my reading, which is my own act of solidarity with survivors, will embolden other survivors to raise their own voices. Moreover, although the reading I offer here is not, strictly speaking, a feminist or post-colonial reading of these texts, in the sense that I'm not attempting to interrogate the curiarchal or colonial power structures that lie beneath the text surface or gave rise to it, I am keenly aware that a reading of 1 Corinthians 15 for a Me Too community must, in keeping with feminist readings, center the experience of these women. And above all, it must liberate it must not reinscribe feelings and experiences of shame, guilt, or oppression for survivors of sexual violence. And it must call into question those power structures that enable shame, guilt, and oppression to persist. According to Tarana Burke, the Me Too movement is primarily driven by empathy and empowerment. Through the power of social media, women who have joined the cry of Me Too can see that they are not alone that they are empowered to raise their voices, and that they are empowered to call sexual assault, harassment, and abuse by its right name, rather than having their stories euphemized by terms like misconduct, or poor behavior, or moral failure. Thus, if a reading of 1 Corinthians 15 is to be a Me Too reading, and if it is to liberate, then it too must be characterized by the same sort of empathy and empowerment. My own Me Too reading in this paper 
begins with identifying Jesus himself as a Me Too survivor, who stands in empathy and solidarity with survivors of sexual violence. In my view, Jesus's resurrected Me Too body offers a source of empowerment for survivors of sexual violence precisely because it does not silence, euphemize, or minimize the experience of crucifixion in the proclamation of the resurrection. Instead, Paul insists on the paradox of the resurrected, crucified Christ. After probing the significance of Jesus's experience of sexual humiliation in the crucifixion, my Me Too reading will center on Jesus's own resurrection, which offers hope for restoration of agency, dignity, and bodily autonomy for Christian survivors of sexual violence. One final consideration is necessary before we undertake a constructive reading of 1 Corinthians 15. The necessity of centering embodiment in our hermeneutical framework. An emphasis on the body seems an obvious place to start, given that our text details the resurrection of the body. But it is easy to speak about the body in the abstract, without reckoning concretely with what embodiment entails, especially in regard to darker aspects of embodiment like the body's susceptibility to sexual violence. It's also easy to speak about sexual violence in the abstract, because using concrete language to speak about sexual violence can be deeply uncomfortable. However, it's necessary to speak plainly and truthfully and concretely about sexual violence, because for victims, sexual violence is not an abstraction. The Apostle Paul recognized that there was something deeply violating about sexual sin, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Sexual sin is violating precisely because it's sin committed in the body. Or in the case of sexual violence, it is another sin committed against the body. Me Too victims thus carry the effects of someone else's sin around with them in their bodies. Survivors of abuse suffer from PTSD, from depression, from panic attacks. All of these are bodily manifestations of trauma, of the way we, as embodied creatures, process what has happened to us. These acts of sexual violence, which are sometimes too traumatic even to be adequately described in words, are nevertheless relived over and over again in the body's responses to trauma. Our bodies remember even what our minds suppressed. Speaking candidly now as a survivor of sexual abuse, sometimes I hate my body. I hate my body because it made me vulnerable. I hate my body because it was violated, because it has felt tainted and dirty because someone else sinned against it. In the words of 1 Corinthians 15, my experience of my body has at times brought forth feelings of being thora, prone to ruin, or atemia, dishonored and being prone to asthenia, to weakness. And even though I know that what happened to my body was not my fault, I have struggled tremendously with how it is that this body of mine, this body that was violated and abused, this body that has felt weak and ruined and dishonored can be redeemed in the resurrection. These feelings are not uncommon among survivors. So then a theological reading of 1 Corinthians 15 within the community of Me Too needs to wrestle with what it means for survivors in particular to hope for the resurrection of the body, which is the hope to which we look forward, as Paul himself articulates in this passage.
In other words, a Me Too reading must center the embodied experience of Me Too survivors, and thus also be grounded in a sober account of the embodied experience of Jesus in his crucifixion and then in his resurrection. Well, thank you, Aaron. That's uh, just the first section of the paper. Um, and I think I heard the word body used quite a bit there. And the more you use body, the more I thought to myself, and I come from evangelicalism, uh, I count myself as an evangelical, but I, I do wonder, what is it about privileging the body and in interpreting text or interpreting the world? Like, what, what is our problem? And of course, I've got a book that I make a case that actually Israel is commanded to learn who God is and who she's supposed to be through her bodies and the rituals. Um, so I see the, the biblical text as putting primacy on the body. But why do you think it is that we we just want to resist that somebody has an embodied experience um, and that they might be a better interpreter of something because of that embodied experience, even negative experiences, as we're going to talk about today? Yeah, that's a question that I've thought quite a bit about. Um, I think that it makes people uncomfortable to talk about embodied experience when my embodied experience is different from their embodied experience. I think, I think that, that difference, highlighting that difference, highlighting the, the distance between our starting points is ultimately what makes people uncomfortable. Um, I think when we don't highlight that experience, um, the differences that we have in our, our embodied experience, say me as a woman who has experienced sexual abuse or assault versus a man who hasn't, um, perhaps experienced that, or as you know, we've taught, we'll talk about that. There's, you know, men who have a different experience of sexual assault than women, um, who have probably, you know, women have experienced sexual assault, but they also live as women who are probably more vulnerable to sexual assault, um, or feel more vulnerable to sexual assault just on the basis of being female than most men experience. Um, I think when you draw attention to that difference of experience, uh, it, it draws, it draws into view that we all come to the text with our bodies. Um, and I think we have this tendency to think that we don't come to the text with our bodies, that we come to the text as blank slates that are, um, going to approach it with our minds objectively. And, um, and when we start thinking about how the body's role in interpretation, uh, it sounds like we're being too subjective, that we're going to add something to the text that's maybe not there. And what I want to say is actually my embodied experience um, helps me to see things in the text that are there uh, that you might not see if you have a different embodied experience. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, in some ways it's a failure to appreciate analogical reasoning and metaphor and how deep it goes into everything, every cognitive thought that we've ever had. And then I, I do think, I do wonder, I'll just put it out there um, and see if it's true. But um, if there's also um, kind of almost like a mentalist egalitarianism going on, that we should all be able to reason our way to the same exact conclusions about the same exact passages. And now you're saying, Actually, maybe you don't understand something that's going on in the text, and you can't understand. You actually have to listen to me so that I can help you, which I hear is profoundly like a message of Scripture that we must listen to each other in order to kind of enrich our mutual understanding. But it does seem to almost make a have and have not category. Yeah, and I think 
I think that need not trouble us unless we, um, unless we don't listen to each other. I mean, I think, I think if we can, but if we can, but seriously, I mean, I think if we can, if we can learn to listen to people who have different experiences than we do, yes, it seems like such a simple thing, but it, it really is a, a way of talking about the value of every member of the body of Christ who brings something slightly different to this interpretive community. Um, and that's why it's so important. And I think scriptural, um, you know, or, theological interpretation gets this right that we need the whole community of, uh, of the people of God to interpret scripture with us because we all do bring something, um, to that interpretive process. Uh, we listen to the spirit, uh, speaking differently. We bring things to it that we, we need and we edify each other through that. Um, and I think the spirit even uses horrific things in our past to show, to shed light on the text. Um, I believe Paul edifying for the rest of the body. I think Paul says something about this, like the organic (laughs) unity of the church and different gifts and something like that. Yeah. There's there's something floating around (laughs) in his thinking about this. Um, But it is that I think that's it's that disposition that if I want to understand what's going on in the text better, like, uh, of course, everybody can understand something going on in the text, but um, to have a richer understanding. Uh, I need my brothers and sisters uh, to help me see things that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And of course, this is obvious, you know, people who are parents or people who are married, you know, they can look at young single people and, and, you know, young single people might say things that they see in the text. I I mean, like a 16 year old, right? And you're you're just looking at them going like, well, you clearly have not been married for 10 years. And then of course, my older friend is saying, well, you clearly have not been married for 40 years, right? So... um, so I think there's some way in which we tacitly acknowledge this is this is just basically true. This is right and that's good. And I also I'd also point out that this idea of listening to other people with varying experiences in order to enrich your understanding of the truth, I mean, that is the scientific model, is that scientists in different places are doing slightly different iterations. And when they listen to each other and trust their exper- their local experiences that they've had, they should strengthen their view of truth if if they've stumbled onto truth in some way. So I don't think we need to be afraid here. Um, I think we need to stumble forward together confidently um, that we'll know something more of God's kingdom through this. Um, I, I do want to, before we move on, because I know lots of people are thinking it, because I wrote in the margins twice when I was reading this paper first, men too. But I just added an E or an N into the, the me too movement. Uh, so I, I do think there's something to be said for, I, I do think there is a difference um, and I want to be careful not to equivocate or say, well, men get sexually molested, they get uh, abused, they get assaulted. And it's true. And maybe in one of these episodes, we should talk about the ways in which there's all kinds of subtle sexual abuse that happens in male locker room culture and all, all kinds of ways in which men feel very bodily vulnerable and emotionally vulnerable uh, through that. But at the same time, recognize there really is uh, a biological difference going on for most people um, and that, that there's a distinction between the way people experience sexual abuse as well. And we can't just say, you know, uh, kind of, you know, they're like, well, you have same sex orientation. I get sexually attracted to other women who aren't my wife. So I know exactly how you feel. It's, uh, you know, it's not exactly the same thing. Um, so I wonder if through the rest of this paper, if you were to guess right now, could men nod along and say, oh, yeah, I, me too, right? Or do, do we need to carve that out now and say, no, maybe not men too? 
Yeah. So actually that's my question that I have written down for, for you in this whole thing <laughs> that I'm writing from, you know, I'm very much self-consciously writing, um, not just as a survivor of sexual uh, abuse, but as a woman who has experienced this, um, in one major episode and then, you know, lots of little ways, subtle ways through my teenage years and adolescence. Um, but my question is, how is that experience? Is, is it different or, or I, I think it is different, but where are the points of resonance with, um, men who have experienced sexual violence? And I think there are, I mean, for one, if I'm going to talk about the sexual violence of Jesus, I would think that that's a, a starting place. Jesus is experiencing this as a man. He's not experiencing this as a woman. Um, so we have to make one interpretive move already. Um, I don't think it's a huge one, but that is my question. You know, how does the, the experience of, of men who have experienced sexual violence uh, track with what I'm, what I'm doing here? Yeah, and I, I think there's a way in which Jesus' experience, which you're going to explore in a little bit, um, it's male on male sexual violence, uh, and it's you know it's institutionalized violence, and so. But there, but the, the gospels are all very clear that the the soldiers lean into this right, and they mock, and they. I mean, anybody who's been, uh, uh, I was a late bloomer, right? So anybody who's been in a locker room where you're the last one to go through puberty, um, anybody who's been around a wrestling team, <laughs> um, they know exactly what this kind of sometimes subtle sexual abuse and some uh, sometimes uh you know i've seen it in the military and i've seen it other places where people would be what we consider just flat out raped but because it's playful and it's they're messing around with you and you know this is what everybody goes through and it's hazing um i think men find bad emotional ways to not seemingly internalize it and so you kind of stand up defend yourself um or you you emotionally defend yourself, and my experience counseling with um, you know young women or even older women talking to people, women who have had lots of ex- experience with sexual abuse, um, they just don't tend to react to it in the same way that men do. Um, and I'm not sure any reaction is better than the other. Uh, they they just the way they process it after as as a whole. Obviously, people there's going to be differences in everybody's case. Um, so that when I think, like, I had to remind myself when we started talking about this, like, oh, yeah, I was sexually abused once. I had one incident. I, but I don't think of it as defining me in some way because I think I've poorly processed it, even though I can see ways in which it's lingered in my life. Um, versus uh, I, I know many women who had one traumatic event, and that almost defines their existence uh, from that point on, Right. So I don't know if I'm typical or not, um, but when I see what's happening with Jesus, that feels much more near uh, my own experiences with other men when they're being mean to each other, and they're and they they always and there's always an element. It's really weird. Men, the straightest men you've ever met in your life, always are mean with sexual. They always bring sexuality into their into their bullying um, for whatever reason. And I think we can probably talk about some of those reasons as we get into First Corinthians. So. Well, I think I'm going to read the next section of the paper then. This this section of the paper is called Hashtag Him to the Crucifixion and Sexual Violence. And we'll see if we can tease out some of these um, these themes with Me Too and also with um, male-on-male sexual violence, which, as Drew has pointed out, is the context of the Gospels and is, the uh, I think, part of the proclamation of the crucifixion that Paul um, emphasizes in his letter to the Corinthians. 
Given the Me Too movement's insistence on calling sexual abuse by its right name, a Me Too reading of the resurrection of the body must begin with an account of what Jesus's body experienced during his crucifixion. Likewise, Paul does not begin his letter to the Corinthians with the triumphant language of the resurrection, but instead begins by preaching crucifixion. One might even say that Paul's declaration of Christ crucified involves the same sort of bold truth-telling that survivors of sexual assault display when they declare hashtag me too. Indeed, we might even call Paul's bold statement, we preach Christ crucified, the first century equivalent of a me too declaration because it refuses the silence and stigma of the cross, thereby upending the power structures intended to shame its victims and strip them of their dignity. I have no doubt that naming Jesus as a Me Too victim evokes feelings of indignation, and perhaps even anger or revulsion among some of you. Western scholars in biblical studies and theology have almost never commented on the intersection between crucifixion and a victim's sexuality. For all of its detail, biblical scholar Martin Hengel's landmark study on the crucifixion does not countenance elements of sexual violence perpetrated during Roman crucifixion, save for a single reference from Seneca to instances of a victim's private parts being impaled. Likewise, most Western theologians don't focus on the physical experience of crucifixion in their formulations of doctrine, like atonement, for example. If the physical experience of crucifixion is mentioned, most Western readings emphasize the physical agony of crucifixion, the pain of Roman scourging, or the excruciating death by asphyxiation. And perhaps theologians are right to emphasize that it's not Jesus's physical suffering that brings about atonement. And perhaps biblical scholars have been right to highlight other aspects of crucifixion. But I want to suggest instead that Jesus's physical experience of the crucifixion has potentially profound implications for our understanding of Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 1 of the gospel accounts that record his ordeal and for our readings of resurrection. This is perhaps especially true for survivors of sexual violence. And yet, to countenance Jesus as a victim of sexual violence is, as Will Gaffney has bluntly stated, so traumatizing for the church that we have covered it up, literally, covering Jesus' genitals on our crucifixes. As Hengel and others have shown, there is no doubt by, that death by crucifixion is physically agonizing, but the degradation of a victim of Roman crucifixion deliberately goes far beyond physical pain. Crucifixion was intended to strip its victims of their dignity and humanity by subjecting them to utter shame through bodily vulnerability and loss of agency and bodily autonomy in what amounted to, as David Toombs remarks, a ritualized form of public sexual humiliation. In her work on, on pain and torture, Elaine Scarry argues that the logic of torture rests on the almost obscene conflation of private and public. Torture magnifies the solitude of privacy without its safety, and it magnifies the self-exposure of the utterly public, but removes the possibility of empathy. Sexual violence perpetrated during torture manifests this logic par excellence. A survey of state-sponsored torture in the Roman Empire, and also in parallel examples from both ancient and contemporary societies, shows that sexual violence in the context of torture occurs along a spectrum. 
In addition to other forms of physical and mental abuse, victims of torture might experience anything from sexual humiliation on the one hand, which might include forced nudity or beatings that cause urinary or fecal incontinence or sexual insults and so forth, to more extreme forms of sexual assault, like forced sexual contact or molestation, vaginal or anal rape or genital mutilation. Key to all forms of sexual violence perpetrated in torture is a lack of agency on the part of the victim and the ritualized dramatization of the torturer's agency. Scary argues, what assists the conversion of absolute pain into the fiction of absolute power is an obsessive self-conscious display of agency. In keeping with what we know regarding sexual violence and torture, the gospel accounts of the crucifixion contain depictions of Jesus's sexual humiliation, and some have suggested leave open the possibility that Jesus experienced sexual assault. The gospel authors record that Jesus was stripped of his clothing three times during the process of crucifixion, once to be beaten while naked, save for a short cloak draped around him in derision, once to strip off the short cloak, and then once more when he was crucified. For example, Matthew records, having stripped him, they placed a cloak around him. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and a reed in his right hand. When they had dressed Jesus up in the costume of a king, when they had dressed him up according to their cruel pleasure, they mocked him and they spat upon him. Jesus is not the subject of the verbs in Matthew's sentences that depict these events. He, the victim, is the object. In these acts of sexual humiliation, Jesus is not only stripped of his clothing, but also of his agency and autonomy. We might expect to breathe a sigh of relief when the soldiers finish mocking him, but even here, Matthew underscores the utter vulnerability of Jesus' body. When they had finished, the soldiers again strip him of the cloak, and then clothe him with his own clothes. By including these details about Jesus's forced attire and forced nakedness, Matthew sharply underscores Jesus's lack of agency and bodily autonomy during the crucifixion. His body was completely subjected or subject to the whims of his torturers. He wore or didn't wear what they chose when they chose it. And if at any point, perhaps in an attempt to spare Jesus some modicum of dignity, we begin to say, well, at least he wasn't sexually assaulted. We misunderstand a crucial component of the efficacy of torture. Torture is effective because the victim is aware of his utter powerlessness to prevent harm to his body. Even if Jesus's sexual humiliation did not progress to sexual assault, it was certainly within the power of the soldiers to sexually assault him. The possibility of violent sexual violation is endemic to sexual humiliation. Vulnerability to assault was the point. Although it might be uncomfortable to admit, most women live with the same type of bodily vulnerability, albeit perhaps to a lesser degree, just by virtue of being female. Heather Burtman poignantly remarks, I am 24 and my body makes life dangerous for me. My breasts, my hips, the way I walk, any woman's breasts, any woman's hips, the way any woman walks. And so we learn as women to walk to our cars with our keys splayed in our fingers, to cover our drinks when we go to the bar. We learn to carry pepper spray when we go out for a run. We learn to smile nicely when we're ogled or catcalled. 
because we fear being overpowered and violated by men who feel entitled to our bodies. Because, as Burton continues, it was as if, once I turned 16, my body no longer belonged to me, but to the world at large and to certain men who drove their cars past it. Focusing on Jesus' sexual humiliation brings to light another dimension of the horror of the cross. It brings into sharp relief the extent to which Jesus' body was sinned against during his execution. His agency and bodily autonomy were forcibly taken from by the Roman soldiers, which is the same sort of objectification that is the hallmark of descriptions of sexual violence, harassment, and abuse. Rape survivor Sarah Super recounts of her rapist, I saw that he was erect, and it felt like such a sick thing that someone could be sexually aroused at my horror. Amber Wyatt, another rape survivor who was made to account for why she didn't struggle more when she was interviewed by the police, answered, I was just laying there. I just felt like there was nothing I could do. As Bertman points out, even sexual harassment is not about me. It's not about love. It's not even about sex. It's about fear and power. What certain men gain from feeding on such things, I do not know, and I do not want to know. Having shared the experience of sexual objectification, Jesus stands in solidarity with survivors of sexual violence as a survivor himself. In his crucifixion, Jesus numbers himself among the tortured and abused bodies of women and men who have been subjected to sexual violence, and significantly, I think, not among the powerful who enabled his state-sponsored torture. In fact, Paul's declaration of Christ crucified is a pronouncement of judgment against all such powers. I recognize here that identifying Jesus' sexual humiliation is not necessarily comforting for non-Christian survivors of sexual violence, and indeed, it may be too uncomfortable a reality to comfort some Christian survivors. For non-Christian survivors, Jesus is just yet another one of the countless victims of state-sponsored torture through the ages. But I would suggest that Jesus' body is still important for the Me Too movement, because all bodies, all people, who have been subjected to sexual violence deserve to have their abuse named for what it is. However, for Christian survivors of sexual violence who live according to our hope in the risen Lord Jesus, Jesus not only stands in solidarity with us in his crucifixion as a victim, but also goes before us in the resurrection, where Jesus's body continues to testify to the illegitimacy of the shame his perpetrators intended to bring upon him. Thus, the body of Jesus and his embodied, non-abstracted experience of crucifixion sends a powerful twofold message to Christian Me Too survivors. First, that we are not alone in our experience of sexual violence. The Son of God stands with, in solidarity with us. Second, that the body of the risen Lord continues to bear witness against sexual violence and gives us hope for restoration through participation in his resurrection and through breaking the silence of sexual violence by speaking our own stories. Well, I just realized that um, you could read that first statement you just gave uh, two different ways, that we're not alone in our experience of sexual violence, the Son of God stands in solidarity with us, and then the second one, that the body of the risen Lord continues to bear. I, I realize, oh, you're talking about Jesus in his resurrected state, but I, I guess the question is, is, is the body of Christ on earth 
continuing to bear witness against sexual violence. Um, and I, I wonder specifically, thinking about, we can talk about the church's reaction to all of this, um, but that first part, in what way, so what do you mean by that when you say his body bears uh, witness against? Yeah, I think, I think I mean two things by it. One, that the fact that Jesus is vindicated in the resurrection, uh, the fact that someone who has, um, that, that the crucifixion that was intended to shame him does not have the last word, but in fact, he is vindicated in his resurrection and um, in his resurrection and ascension still bears the marks of crucifixion. Um, I'm going to talk about that uh, a little bit later in the paper, but that, that the experience of resurrection doesn't erase or minimize the fact that he was crucified. In fact, in some ways, I think it amplifies it precisely because um, the resurrection pronounces the shame of crucifixion to be illegitimate. Um, it, it doesn't do what the Romans intended to do. It, it vindicates Jesus as um, an innocent sufferer and bears witness against the evil and the horror that they have perpetrated. Um, and not just them, but the evil and the horror of this present age that is passing away if we skip to a different letter of Paul's. Right. Yeah. And even, you know, the, the, the marks where the, the nails penetrated him, where the spear penetrated him, those are, those are like the, no, come check it out. This is, uh, this is like the for realsies moment uh, for the disciples when they can actually touch uh, the marks where he was penetrated that led to his death. Um, yeah, I wonder this, because you're using a lot of uh, contemporary language here, and I know some people are just going to like, you know, they, it sounds like human resources training stuff stands in solidarity with you. So it's, it's going to instantly <laughs> trigger some people, uh, which is fine enough. Uh, be triggered if you need to, but th- then listen on. Um, but also I do wonder, like, and this is to you personally, does it make you feel better to know that Jesus stands in solidarity with you? Like, is that an actual real thing? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, if it weren't, I wouldn't have written it. Uh- <laughs> Um, and the reason that, that I find it comforting is because, um, I find it, I, I find it comforting to know that Jesus has experienced not just the horror of, um, that, that Jesus's sexuality wasn't, um, bracketed out, I guess, of, of the process of crucifixion. To me, when we, when we talk about Jesus as a, a victim of sexual violence, um, I think it emphasizes for me in a different way, the, the humanity of Jesus, that he is fully human in this way too. Because I think one of the things that is so insidious about sexual violence is how, um, how alone you feel because it's so scary to disclose. And so when I read the gospel accounts and I see the gospel authors telling the truth about what happens to Jesus in crucifixion. It, it makes me bold to be able to talk about my own experience of sexual violence. So yes, it makes a tremendous difference to me that this is part of our scripture, that this, that the, the risen Lord of the universe didn't think that sexual, that, that a body was too disgusting. Um, even a body that was, subjected to sexual violence was too disgusting to spend eternity in. That makes a big difference to me. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out. I mean, 
it's not that God created a conspiracy of circumstances so that Jesus had to nobly sit around his disciples and drink poison and give him his last pithy sermon while he was dying, right? It was that everything was stripped of him in those final moments. And of course, conversely, the, the opening of most of the Gospels is the driven in by the Spirit and offered by whoever that was, um, the evil one offered ways out of it um, early on, paths, paths to avoid the cross, um, and, but he goes all the way down. It, it just occurred to me that I don't think we ever talk about Jesus' genitalia or sexuality or the fact that he's a man, except for this, where he's stripped naked. It's kind of almost the first time us um, you know, puritanical Westerners ever have to think about this issue. Um, I yeah I I do wonder how much the solidarity um how far that works. I mean I it, and I only because I had not thought about it that way until I was reading your paper um and it gave me great comfort but then I thought would that work for anybody else? And then I remember strangely enough this is a little bit of a side story but my dad who was in Vietnam uh he was just a dutiful young Christian guy went into the draft went into like the first air cav like jumped out of helicopters, was like in the worst part, got wounded in 1968. But uh, on a given night, he basically said he was just crying out to God, you know, in the jungle for like a month at a time, getting shot at. It's just not fun life. And uh, and also, you know, I had this experience in combat too. When you realize somebody's shooting at you, that like as funny as it sounds, it hurts your feelings. Like it, it really is like, it's one thing to have bullets flying around you. It's another thing to realize that person over there is trying to kill me. And you're like, you don't even know me, right? Like, what are you doing? Uh, maybe if they knew me, they would want to kill me, but they don't even know me yet, right? Um, and so he said he was whinging to God, just like, why, God, why would you do this to me? Like, why are you, like, why would, I've, I've been obedient. I've been a pretty good guy. Um, and he said he immediately was struck with a vision with Jesus on the cross, uh, and, and like, it was just, it was just a view of it and it almost like did no words need to be said. Like, this is the reality that I have gone through. Uh, and, and he felt a deep sense of solidarity and almost like a, okay, like a Jovian moment, like, okay, okay. I like, where were you when I was dying on the cross? Kind of a question. Interestingly enough, he got shot the next day and medevaced out and never went back into combat. Um, so and I, I've heard it in the churches in Kenya as well that have been through some systemic violence. And it's it's interesting to hear um, that you do feel alone um, and you can feel solidarity. But the I guess the problem I have is that unless you are willing to admit that Jesus was a victim of sexual violence for you know whatever else is going on there, you're you're kind of cut. You're cutting yourself off from that solidarity with your Lord and Savior until you kind of admit that this is what actually happened. Uh, is that fair to say? Hmm. <laughs> I probably have to think about that more. Are you cutting yourself off from solidarity if you won't go here with me? I think, I don't know if I go so far as to say that you've you cut yourself off from solidarity with Jesus, if you won't follow me where I'm going with this. Um, because I think God is a gracious God who meets us in the, where we are. Um, I, th I think what, I think this is important. Um, I think it's an important truth to speak because I see it in scripture. And so for me, I'd rather flip the question around and say, what does it mean for me to have solidarity with Jesus? Um, 
and start with, I see this in the text. Jesus has this experience. Hopefully we in the church can be able to like use plain language to speak truthfully about the experiences of sexual assault because it mattered when it happened to Jesus's body. And it matters now when it happens to members in our congregation. And, and I hope that just, just seeing it and naming it for, for what it is. Um, you know, I realize that solidarity is kind of a buzzword. Um, I find it a helpful one. Uh, I don't, I couldn't think of another one that. <laughs> well, it's an old school quite, buzzword. It's not. It's, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but I couldn't think of another one that, that, I mean, empathy is equally buzzwordy, um, shared experience, but just to recognize that Jesus went through something really horrific. Um, and it's also something that's horrifically common. You know, we sometimes make the crucifixion and I I don't want to minimize the uniqueness of Jesus's crucifixion. I mean, there's a reason we only talk about Jesus, the crucified, you know, Jesus's crucifixion and not everyone else's who was crucified. The Romans crucified lots of people, but, um, but that experience of, of state sponsored torture is certainly not one unique to Jesus. And the experience of sexual assault is equally not unique to Jesus. So I think it's important to begin to talk about what happens to Jesus's body so that we have language to talk about what's happening, the sins that are happening against people's bodies and the sins that we perpetrate against people's bodies. Yeah. And if I could go back to that quote from Corey Tenboom, it's, it's interesting that it was her embodied experience that awoken her understanding of the text. Um, and of course, if you know that the story of Corey Tendenboom, they're they're constantly reading scripture, devouring it as much as they can. They have hidden; they've been hiding scriptures with them uh, throughout the whole process. But it's it's only when she had to walk naked and be humiliated and, and powerless in front of other people and through these torture mechanisms that she heard those words ring in her ear differently um, and saw Jesus in this new light and her relationship to him as well. So I think it, I think she's echoing a lot of things that you're saying. Um, or you're echoing a lot of things she's saying, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the next episode, we're going to move on to uh, Paul's particular um, exploration of Jesus' crucifixion in, in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and thinking about how he's using that to talk to people who he has already addressed earlier in the letter as people who have participated in various sexual activities, um, wanted and unwanted uh, people who are you know, they, they got all kinds of problems in the church there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, how does the paper end? Signs of hope. It ends, yeah, agency and bodily autonomy that we regain, which yeah. I think um, might be the most controversial thing that I say. <laughs> well, there's a saucy little teaser for uh, for the next one. Um but okay, and I, I think it's worth saying that people, um, it, it, my experience as a pastor tells me that it, it is the case that are people that are listening to this that actually have had some kind of sexual abuse and haven't even thought about it in decades, and this might have stirred up some feelings, uh, memories, uh, stirred up all kinds of things. So I think it's worth saying that um, if that's you, it wouldn't hurt to go um, go get some prayer with somebody and go uh, talk to somebody and... Um, and, and, and listen to the next episode and see if there's some power and agency that can come out of this, because I have a feeling there's um, there's uh, good to come out of this. Actually, I, ha- I don't have a feeling. I've read the paper. I know that there's good to come out of this. I, I don't know why you think it's controversial, but I'll take your word for it. 
we'll we'll have an interesting conversation about it next time then. All right. Thank you, Aaron, for your time. Aaron from Oxford. How do you say Oxford in British? I don't know. I'm not British. <laughs> do, they, do they have a... Oxford. Yeah, I was, yeah, they kind of put the Oxford. Ox, Oxford. Oxford. Yeah, that's, that's right. I'm that Oxford. sounds like Tom Wright. That's the way he says it. Well, yes, I'm in my kitchen in Oxford. Should and... we mention that you're also recovering from illness? Oh, yes. Or do you yes, want the stigma? I had, yeah. I have had, I have had the, the dreaded virus. So um, if you hear pauses or a scratchy voice, it's because the cough really is as bad as uh, people say that it is. So be safe out there on script listeners. Don't worry, Old Testament people. I, I made her yell out unclean wherever she goes in this podcast. Okay, uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.